a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott Richards after a brief absence. Yeah, up to the uh, beautiful uh, yet wet Pacific Northwest. Uh, when you go up there, everything is so green, and then you find out why. <laughs> Because it rains all the time. <laughs> yes, the trick isn't to stay warm. Hi to all my uh, Pacific Northwest friends and uh, relatives who might be joining in. No offense. I enjoyed it. Yes. You live in Tucson. You'll take all the rain you can get. <laughs> yes, productive ministries. But with that said, we're glad to have you back, and we're also glad to have you with us. If you'd like to send us your questions, note that the there we go. Venues in which you can send your questions to us are the same as they always have been. If you want to email us a question, send them to questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R-hope at gmail.com. That's good both during and after the broadcast. If we don't get to your question or you want to send in your question off hours, that will keep it nice and organized for us. And note that the email address is for Bible questions. The substance of the question and the answer both pertaining to the Bible. If you want to talk about things going on in your life, we appreciate the situation, but of course that's not what that's there for. So we encourage you to use it as it's intended to be. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can engage with us face-to-face on YouTube. A Reason for Hope is our page. You subscribe to us there, you'll be notified of when we are going live in your respective time zone, unless the censorship overlords target us, which tends to happen every couple months or so, but we're planning contingencies as they go along. Hopefully more venues will open up, or maybe this venue will just become more tolerable. Time will tell. But if you subscribe to us there at A Reason for Hope, you'll be able to not only engage with the broadcast, but also our bi-weekly Bible studies at this moment going through Esther and the book of Acts. Note as well, if you'd like to join us on Facebook, the same benefits of notifications when we are going live will exist, and as well, the same opportunity on YouTube and Facebook. You will have a chat box on the right side of the screen when we are live, or a comment section you can engage with that we'll be notified about at any time you engage with it. And of course, messages being put on archive. If you'd like to revisit a broadcast that you missed, but you'd like to listen to it or perhaps re-listen to it, get the topics clarified. Those will be available for you on YouTube and Facebook as well. And lastly, if you'd prefer not to engage with social media, our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, will have a Watch Live tab where you can engage with us from 4 to 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. Note that the Calvary is spelled C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, referencing Gordon's Calvary, the mountain that resembles a skull outside of Jerusalem, not a medieval term referencing horses. Yeah. The there L you matters. Go. So with that said, we are looking forward to answering your questions, but before we get into all of that, we want to make sure we pray that the Lord speaks more than we do, and potentially any updates that we've missed over the weekend. We'll leave time for that as well. But first, why don't we pray? Yeah, let's do that. Father, thank you that we can welcome your presence here on the program today. Lord, we pray for all those people who are tuning in uh, from uh, literally all over the nation, all over the world, uh, that you would uh, speak special things to them, that uh, the sense of your nearness and your presence close to them uh, would touch them and encourage them, and uh, because uh, we're sticking to your word, 
And your word uh, always succeeds what you send it out to do. It never returns to you void. Uh, that people be built up, edified, encouraged, comforted, uh, allowed to hear your very voice speaking to the issues of their heart. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what awaits us first, an update or the questions? Uh, well, uh, as far as an update is concerned, uh, Israel, I guess, today uh, engaged in a series of strikes in Damascus, Syria, uh, that were targeting uh, senior uh, Iranian Republican Guard Corps uh, personnel. Apparently, these uh, strikes were very precise and very successful from uh, all, uh, all reports. Uh, fascinatingly, uh, some uh, intelligence has shown up and uh, revealed that one of the reasons that uh, the uh, people in Gaza and Hamas launched uh, their brutal massacre of Jews on October 7th was they were convinced that if they did so, that particularly the Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon would jump right in and attack Israel from the north, uh, forcing Israel to fight a two-front war. Well, if you've been keeping score at home, you know that uh, Hezbollah launched a few anti-tank missiles at Israeli positions, and uh, there's sort of been a tit-for-tat going on with Hezbollah in that region, but uh, nothing like uh, Hamas was expecting. In a sense, they were double-crossed. Uh, Hezbollah just decided to wait it out and see what Israel's response would be like in Gaza, and apparently uh, it uh, caused them to think twice about uh, engaging in a new front in the north. Uh, that's not going to do them a whole lot of good, however, because uh, the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, have been very, very adamant about the fact that as soon as things are stabilized in Gaza, the next engagement is going to be with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this has uh, really been um, cast in stone uh, because of the loss of life of uh, some Israeli citizens in northern Israel. Uh, nearly 80,000 uh, Israelites are, uh, Israeli citizens are refugees at this time because they've been moved away from the immediate front war zone in the areas we would know as the Golan Heights, uh, even up to the edge of Galilee itself. Uh, it really breaks my heart because uh, one of my favorite places to go when uh, we're in Israel is that whole region up there. It's incredibly beautiful, uh, just so rich in biblical history. And uh, now it's a deserted war zone. So uh, we've seen some of these towns and uh, what people have invested in to make these places prosperous and beautiful. And uh, now it's uh, no man's land. So please continue to pray uh, for the peace of Jerusalem. A very interesting statement uh, issued by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He said, I congratulate the members of the Knesset uh, from the coalition and the opposition who voted in favor of my proposal against the establishment of a Palestinian state. We achieved a huge and unprecedented majority of 99 out of 120 Knesset members. Uh, I don't remember such a huge majority on any proposal. Knesset united today with a huge majority against the attempt to dictate to us the establishment of a Palestinian state. This dictate will harm peace, and it sends a clear message to the international community. Unilateral recognition will not bring peace closer, but will make it more distant. Uh, the citizens of Israel and their representatives in the Knesset are more than united today than uh, ever before. We voted for a huge majority for a move, uh, uh, with a, for a move that would endanger Israel 
and the achievement of peace before we achieve a complete victory against Hamas. Uh, the reason why this is so significant is uh, yesterday uh, the uh, clock was ticking, if you will. There were a number of uh, leaks from our State Department that indicated that the United States was going to go to the UN Security Council and cast a vote in favor of a unilateral ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, and uh, if we had done that, uh, it would have uh, ostensibly uh, been in exchange for uh, the negotiation with the release of hostages. But if you've seen what the last ceasefire in Gaza did, uh, Hamas wasn't interested in such a thing. Uh, for Hamas to uh, be given a peace proposal like some that have been floated by the nations of Qatar and Egypt along with the United States that would include the recognition of Israel as a Jewish state is an absolute non-starter as far as Hamas is concerned. Uh, they're, not all, they're not going to give up their hostages until they are sure and certain that uh, their uh, leadership uh, is uh, safely spirited away to uh, safe havens in other countries. I don't know how safe those havens are uh, because if uh, you remember what happened after the Munich massacre at the Olympics, uh, Golda Meir uh, issued uh, an order that every single one of the perpetrators and the planners of the Munich massacre, no matter where they were, no matter how secure they felt they were, would be hunted down and brought to justice. They would be killed and every single one was hunted down and killed. Uh, the current Israeli government has issued the same declaration for the leaders of Hamas who orchestrated the slaughter and vicious rape and atrocities that were done on October 7th in Israel. And you'd better believe that Israel means what it says and says what it means along that line. I breathe such a sigh of relief personally when uh, the UN Security Council vote came up, Britain abstained and the United States voted against the proposal, allowing Israel to continue on uh, with its operation to uh, remove uh, the terrorists from Gaza. To propose the idea of a Palestinian state as a reward for this kind of behavior is almost unconscionable in my mind. Uh, you know, they say that behavior rewarded is behavior repeated. And so if we have basically taught uh, radical Islam that the way to achieve monumental uh, goals and, and, and means, uh, that the best means is to uh, kidnap innocent people or butcher them or rape them, uh, we're going to see more of that. And uh, the fact that the United States uh, stood against that, I think, deserves uh, to be commended. And if uh, you are a politically involved person, uh, I would highly encourage you to uh, send off a quick email to your uh, representative in Congress, as well as uh, the President of the United States, uh, congratulating them and supporting them in terms of standing with Israel in this very, very difficult time. So um, operations proceed apace in Gaza. They are uh, rapidly uh, preparing for the final push into the southern region of Gaza, the one that abuts Egypt called the Rafa uh, region. And uh, when that happens, that's uh, essentially where you're going to find, uh, at the very least, uh, the majority of uh, Hamas leadership, including uh, Yaha Sanwar, 
who has uh, been identified in certain videos as being in the terror tunnels down there. There's rumors that he might have escaped to Egypt. It'll be very interesting to see if that, in fact, has happened, although Egypt is no friend of Hamas because Hamas is just another version of the Muslim Brotherhood that overthrew the government of Egypt and uh, the current Egyptian government overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood. So uh, Egypt's no friend of Hamas. But uh, we'll see what happens. Continue to pray for the peace of Israel, pray for his protection around them, pray for our leaders that we continue to stand with Israel for one important reason. God made a very key promise in the book of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. He told Abraham he would bless those who blessed him and his descendants and curse those who would curse them. So as long as we stand with Israel, I think we uh, have one uh, thread, uh, one shred of connection with that Abrahamic blessing. If we turn our back on Israel, well, as far as the United States is concerned, all bets are off. And speaking of forsaking the terms and conditions of that blessing, we have a question sent along to us from Bob. He was at the men's group last night. And uh, in the Bible study, they encountered two men, and towards the end, he encouraged that we should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. To his surprise, one of the new faces said something to the effect that the people in Israel were not important, having been placed there politically. He said the only Hebrews that mattered in the nation were the 144,000. He believed that this gentleman was an heir, but didn't know exactly why, so he didn't pursue the subject. That's good. Better to <laughs> abstain from a conversation that's going to lead nowhere than to pursue one that's going to put you on the back foot. Uh, could you please comment on, first, why praying for the peace of Jerusalem is important? We discussed that in part, but we can expound on it a little. Second, what this person might have meant by the present-day Jews being there put for political reasons. And third, that the 144,000 in Revelation 7 and 14 are a future happening, I think. So why mention them in comparison to present-day Jewish citizens in Israel? Good questions, Bob. Uh, Just starting with that first premise, and then we'll get into the anti-Semitic propaganda, and then, of course, the practical point of eschatology. Yeah. When it comes to praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you mentioned Genesis 12, but could we go a little bit more into that? Yeah, you know, I guess, Bob, when people say, well, why are you praying uh, for Israel right now? Why are you praying for this particular nation? Well, one of the things that we have to understand about the nature of prayer itself, Bob, is that prayer uh, isn't our arm-twisting God to see things our way. Uh, prayer is a avenue where God uh, causes us to see things His way, and uh, the more that we begin to understand how God looks at Israel, the literal, uh, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the more it's going to affect uh, our prayer life. Uh, as far as how God sees them, uh, boy, consider what Paul said about uh, the Jewish people in Romans chapter nine, and this is the same Paul who, by the way, uh, was the victim of, among other things, uh, being stoned to death outside the city of Lystra, an event that was orchestrated by the members of the Jewish synagogue that was in that area. So if anybody had the right to be anti-Semitic, you know, the old synagogue of Satan thing, uh, it was the Apostle Paul. But listen to how he viewed the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, he said, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, that sounds like a pretty uh, hearty endorsement of the fact that God is still at work in the hearts and lives of the Jewish people, and that the world owes the Jewish people a tremendous debt for that catalog list of blessings that not only were a blessing to the people of Israel, but as we have discovered, have made Israel a blessing to the whole world because the Jewish Messiah, Jesus himself, thoroughgoing Jew, but what, uh, in spite of what you might hear on the internet, uh, check out his family line in uh, the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. Couldn't be more Jewish if he had tried as far as being a descendant of King David is concerned. Uh, but when we look at that and we realize that God has blessed the whole world through Israel and that God still has plans for the people of Israel, that his plan and his passion for the people of Israel hasn't ceased. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, God said, if my covenant with day and night can be abrogated, set aside, so there's no more night and day, so will uh, my covenant with the Jewish people. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for God's protection for the people of Israel in the midst of this current conflict. We pray that they would come to know their Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, Yeshua is the Hebrew way of saying Jesus. Uh, what we are doing is we are aligning ourselves with God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. We are sharing his heart. And the other thing, Bob, is our prayers matter. Uh, someday we will see when we're in heaven the difference that our prayers made. And if I'm going to pray uh, and uh, I want to align myself with one of the most important issues that's going on in the world today, well, then certainly I need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Those are reasons why we should pray for the people of Israel. But, Sean, when it comes to 144,000 Jews who are mentioned in two chapters in the book of Revelation, uh, where do they fit into all of this? And are they around today, or is this something yet future? Well, they could be around yet today, and they could play that role in the yet future. Both can be true. And just like the little side note about the Hebrew people being in Israel for political purposes, not prophetic ones, uh, first of all, Daniel, or excuse me, Ezekiel 37 has some uh, comments to make on that matter. We can talk about that at another time. But when the argument's being made, and we've had people legitimately try to uh, put this forward, although the same guy who made this argument told me that nothing exists apart from his imagination, so maybe just imagine this was true. It ultimately comes down to the claim that what are modernly described categorical Hebrews aren't actually Hebrews, that the quote-unquote true Jews have yet to enter back into their homeland. Now, the groups of individuals that were brought back and are still being brought back into Israel's borders today would fall under three major categories. The first are what are called Ashkenazi Jews, or those who would be proficient in Yiddish. It is a not necessarily an amalgamation, but an attempt at harmonizing German and Hebrew. 
And of course, they uh, constituted a majority of the Hebrews in Central and Eastern Europe that were then brought into Israel following the horrors of the Holocaust. There's another group called Sephardi Jews that were mostly uh, localized to the regions of Spain and Western Europe, but other regions in Northern Africa as well, who were also brought in, and they speak their uh, unique dialect of Spanish and Hebrew. But when it comes to other groups, like say, like say, for example, the cult group of the Falasha tribe, I don't doubt these are in northern and central Africa, that there are Hebrews that in what's called the diaspora, the dispersed right. Hebrews to all nations, could have gone south just as much as north, east, and west. But uh, when it comes to their claim that they are the authentic descendants of Judah and that the Messianic a line is truly through the African line. It's no more uh, attempt at racial supremacy and co-opting history than the Black Hebrew Israelites or the Anglo-Israel uh, Anglo cult. So just note that point. When they say that they're there for political reasons, it's a false claim to say that these people were not, in fact, Hebrews. They were just selected by the power brokers at B to uh, create destabilization in the Middle East, and then they'll fill in the gaps as they see fit, depending on what their conspiracy wants to accomplish. The fact of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of the claimed Hebrews today are in fact what they claim. And these family records and histories going well into the medieval period are only limited to that scope because the Romans destroyed all their genealogical records. So we can't fault them for that. And we also have to bear some fault ourselves and I say ourselves loosely, but the European nations did not make it easy for them to make a stable living and to keep extensive records of their family history, but every single person that you would count in Israel isn't a fake Jew. That is, of course, right. a misnomer. Let's just put that out there. So when you're hearing about, oh, Sephardis, uh, they're just Spaniards that were selected to be Hebrews for a political agenda— they made the claim. Now they have to prove it. And the Hebrews that are from that background can prove it a lot more than they can just accuse. The same thing for the Ashkenazi, the same thing for the Falasha and the Ethiopian Hebrews. It ultimately comes down, though, to this question. And this is where we get kind of into the I smell a Calvinist in the room kind of mindset, <laughs> and not even necessarily a Calvinist, but a double predestination, hardcore Calvinist. Now, a Calvinist is a person that lays great stress on the idea of predestination, the point where they'd say we don't have any free will as far as our uh, relationship with God's concerned. But even Calvinists would distance themselves from this category of individual because they go in so far as to say those people are not elect, therefore there's no point in saving them. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, for example, would disagree, and he's a giant in, in the theological circles, especially among them reform camp, where they would make the point in arguing, hey, if we knew who was elect and who wasn't, then we could pick and choose, but we don't, so we share with whoever and whenever we can. So even the Calvinist mindset wouldn't go this far, but Bob, that's just something to be aware of, because it entertains these kind of nihilistic mindsets. The mindset that God is going to use any group or category of people in the future does not mean that you can then compartmentalize and trivialize the salvation, the well-being, or even the humanity right. of a particular ethnic group, because God has plans for a specific number of them. Because note, when we say, 
or rather we say, what he say, that the Jews that matter, that's already not a red flag, that's a black flag when it comes to any understanding of humanity, let right. alone Christian doctrine. Because in the book of Romans chapters 9 through 11, and you basically have it memorized, when it notes the salvation... I did my master's thesis on Romans 9 through 11. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, not, yeah. Uh, I'm not catching you off guard here. Yeah. But when it mentions the well-being of Israel, does it note the specifics, or does it mention all of Israel being saved as a result of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in? Well, uh, that's the controversial verse in Romans chapter 11 and uh, verse 25. Uh, essentially, uh, what Paul is saying is this for I do not want to, I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sake but concerning election they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, some people will say, well, does that mean that every Jewish person, just by dint of being genetically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is going to be saved? No, this is speaking of a future event. It is speaking of a time where, uh, in the final seven-year period that the Bible predicts, uh, where Israel is going to be, again, the focus of God's dealings, in this world, the 144,000 set-aside Jews, you can read about them in Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 7, I should say, if you're interested, are going to have this worldwide ministry. There's going to be two Old Testament-style prophets. Some believe they are Moses and Elijah. Some people believe they're Moses and Enoch. Most people believe that Moses is one of them. Maybe Moses uh, and, 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 Elijah and Elijah is definitely going to be a part of all of that. They're going to have a worldwide impact as well. But uh, we're told that uh, when Jesus returns, that uh, Israel is going to look upon the one whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as for a, 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 an only son in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. And that passage notes that when God comes to fight for Israel, in that passage, verse 8, it leads into the conversation, they will look upon me whom they pierced. Right. The subject hasn't changed. Right. So when did Israel pierce its God? Yeah. And yeah. that's the point. Yeah, and, and we're already seeing a foreshadowing of this in Israel today. Um, you know, we've mentioned this, and it's such an encouraging statistic. We don't mind mentioning it again, but uh, according to the Lifeway organization, a poll uh, commissioned by our good friend Joel Rosenberg, in his allisrael.com uh, news site, uh, over one million Jews in this world consider themselves to be messianic. That is, believers that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, when you consider there's 17 million Jews in the world, that's a pretty hefty percentage, and it's growing almost exponentially. So we're starting to see that foreshadowing of that happening uh, today. Even Jews who do not, say, personally uh, make a commitment uh, to Jesus as the Messiah, our good friend Ronnie Simone would be one of them, are very, very sympathetic. Uh, you talk to Ronnie and he will tell you that uh, the evidence is very, very strong that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'll take one less enemy than 10 more friends. So, by the point you know, God is, God's working on the Jewish people. So. Which is what also builds on the same point, and we're just working on premise one here, of what Romans 9 says, where it makes a distinction, is God forsaken his people? They should fall. He says, certainly not. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I didn't get that memo. Yeah. And then he references what? 
first kings in the ministry of Elijah, yeah. where all of Israel had supposedly forsaken the knowledge of the true and living God. Yeah, that's Romans 11, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And what does God say back to him? He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Or, not, or is it 9,000? Seven. Seven, okay. Seven's usually a good biblical number to yeah. be safe, but I wanted to make sure. So we already see this trend of God not just numbering those who are his, but this is the key distinction between that man's presumption on the character of God and his assumption to be in the position and the authority of God. Abandon Israel, he says, because the only people that matter are those future 144,000, which would be a technical correct term if we were omniscient. But here's the problem from a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist view. It ultimately stems from the assumption that what? We know those numbers. Did God reveal to Elijah this, like, you know, treasure hunt map of all of the faithful Hebrews that were still in Israel at the time of the king of uh, Ahab and Jezebel? No, but he was informed that God knows who are his. In fact, that's a quote from that very same chapter and the chapters before it and after it. God knows who are his. Now, is it then our responsibility to sift and weed through and find the categories of ethnicities of people who are potentially gods? No, we can't make that distinction because in the same chapter that mentions the 144,000, who's blessed by their ministry? All nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues are brought before right. the presence of the Lamb with palm branches in their hands saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They take ownership, from, despite coming from all nations, of the God of Israel. So what's happening here? The nation of Israel is witnessing to all nations. Now you say, well, that's what matters. Great. So where do you get the presumption then to say, well, I hear that there's going to be some German fella that's going to be an incredible evangelist. So we got to witness to the Germans at, at the expense of all other nations. God's forsaken every other nation because God's named this one German person to me. That's stupid. Yeah. Let, let me just be frank here. If we're going to say, well, God has a specially selected group of Hebrews for a future purpose, therefore forsake all of Israel and just note those are the ones that will be important. That's stupid, <laughs> and we're not going to make our ministry based on that. So that would be one of many faults in his logic, and we're noting it from a scriptural background. First, when you note Revelation 7 and 14 mentioning those Hebrews, and it mentions them by tribe, they are Hebrews, we're talking about their purpose being to witness to all nations and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament clarification that it's right. still a future event. Right. Then if we build on that point and ask, okay, God has a plan for the Jewish people, not certain Jewish people, but the Jewish people. These 144,000 will be included in that, but there could be two reasons for it. The first is that they're the only ones who are left. Noting again Zechariah when it yeah. notes that the Antichrist policies will see the Holocaust pale in comparison. Yeah, two-thirds of the Jewish people being wiped out. But the other possibility, and this is also what's important to note, is that just like we all have spiritual callings, God knowing who are his is no more permission for us to marginalize the salvation of the Hebrew nation or the Hebrew identity as a whole. 
than it would be to note that there's Gentile nations that will come to a saving relationship with God. Therefore, there's no point in ministering to Hebrews until every non-Hebrew has been saved. We see that's contradicted by modern data today. Yeah. And if you presume your conclusion and say, well, they're not legitimately saved, because that would contradict my interpretation of Romans 11, the Bible's against you, you're not with the Bible. And if you call yourself a Christian, get off of that horse. So, just to bring it all into recap, the claim first and foremost that God is, well, let, let me just get his comment back up again so we don't end up misrepresenting him. The comment that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem is because we know that Israel will know peace when the Prince of Peace comes. Yeah, so, I, I don't see who would be against that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Joe Rogan, even yeah. from his yeah. uh, Joe Rogan Experience podcast, is praying Maranatha at this point. So when we're talking about that, it's synonymous. And we, of course, would be blessed by that in the process. The second that they say, well, the Hebrews there today are there for political reasons, that's a straw man of the fact that Hebrews have had dispersions throughout well, history. you know, I can't help but do the eye roll on that, because you could have said the same thing about uh, the people of Israel returning after 70 years of captivity. A king by the name of Artaxerxes said, you can return. That was political. Did God know that use, changes. Did, did, did God use uh, rulers and politicians to accomplish his will? Absolutely. Just but it, like he used a ruler and a politician to get them to be exiled from the land, he used a ruler and a politician to bring them back. So to me, that's a silly question. And it would no more invalidate it than the foundations of the Hebrew nation when the mixed multitude joined them leaving Egypt. There's still a Hebrew identity. Yeah, you know, they exactly. left. So uh, if there were non-Hebrews that got, uh, I guess, mixed in with the mess, it's not going to invalidate the fact that there are ethnic Hebrews in Israel, and that is a fulfillment of prophecy. Then lastly, the 144,000 being the only Jews that mattered, I'm just going to say it, that's racist. <laughs> it's marginalizing and invalidating people for salvation on the basis that God's name specific numbers of them, and every other time we see God numbering those who are his, it's noting from his perspective, not ours. Yeah. And he's claiming God's perspective for himself, which is blasphemous. So, um, yeah, I don't and, know. And, and not, to your... not to get too inside baseball-y on all this, but in Revelation 14, where do we find the 144,000? Dead. They're in heaven. Uh, the Antichrist wipes them out at a particular point in time. Does that mean that every Jew that matters has been wiped out during the tribulation period? Not at all, because again, we are told that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to fight for his people. Uh, his people are going to be called, according to Matthew chapter 24, to flee to the mountains uh, beyond Jordan as far as uh, finding a place of refuge during that time. And that doesn't just apply to the 144,000. You have to have Jewish people who survived the tribulation period are going to go into the thousand-year reign of Christ when he comes back again. So a little inside baseball-y, but to say that, uh, well, the 144,000 are the only Jews that matters sounds like a roundabout way of saying, well, therefore, I can be as anti-Semitic as I want to anybody I don't consider to be a hundred, uh, part of the 144,000. And it brings me back to Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8. If you are one of those people that holds these kind of anti-Semitic ideas, uh, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Uh, if you start playing around with the Jewish people and start making their life difficult, uh, start uh, castigating them, hating them, 
being prejudicial against them, throwing invect invective at them. Uh, it's like you're poking God's eye. Uh, he doesn't like that. I don't think anyone would. So I, I, I don't want to poke God's eye. Do you? Not unless I had a death wish. <laughs> so, um, so it's not to help you out, Bob. Question from Mike. He wants to know how he can have a relationship with God, a real tangible one, or is it only through faith that we can experience God in the relationship? He's struggling with this. I guess the issue in the struggle is that we're bringing a presumption first about relationships as if any other human relationship doesn't involve trust. Well, throwing that out there. Well, but the, also the, that the, the only the, legitimate form of relationship is one that's pertaining to the five senses, particularly exactly. sight and touch. Exactly. You know, it, fascinating. I, I had a, this very same conversation uh, with a dear, dear uh, friend of mine uh, just recently. And, uh, you know, she said, uh, you know, it's hard for me to have a relationship with God because when I pray, sometimes I just feel like I'm talking into the air. You know, if I could see him, if I could feel him, then that would be different. Well, okay, but have you ever been in a situation where you've been seeing things? You know, uh, to quote uh, the great philosopher Obi-Wan Kenobi, your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. If you don't believe that you can be fooled by uh, the things your eyes see, uh, I just encourage you to hang around with our good friend Adrian Van Vactor, professional magician, sleight of hand artist, He'll make you think you're seeing things you're not seeing, but you would swear up and down that you have seen. Or so, if you have my condition. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, touch, you know, smell, these different things. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, all of these things that we think are so tangible and real are just reactions of neurons in our brain coming together. So how do you know those neurons are processing, th processing things correctly? We elevated the things that we can experience through our five senses as uh, the gold standard for what a real relationship is all about. But uh, not to get into this, you know, is knowledge knowable? And if not, how can we know this kind of debate? Uh, you know, let's say that we can know things through our five senses. But let's talk about relationships in our five senses. You know, Debbie Boone had a uh, pot boiler uh, uh, hit uh, way back when, uh, you light up my life where the last sign line always made me cringe said it can't be wrong when it feels so right. How many people have you run into have gotten into relationships and said, Oh, I think I've found my soulmate or, or gee, you know, I really feel that love with this person. Like I've never felt before. And, and then five years later, they're on to somebody else. Why? Uh, because another songwriter, Gordon Lightfoot, also uh, deeply articulated part of the human condition when he said, I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. Uh, you know, so if your relationships on a horizontal level, just to start with, are based upon your feelings, you're setting yourself up uh, for a pretty good certainty you're going to have a date with relational disaster. Because sooner or later, you're not going to feel the way you used to feel. You're not going to feel, uh, you know, shivers when that person walks into the room or anymore. You're, it's just natural and normal for these things to happen. But what does make a relationship? Well, I'll tell you, I've done relationships right and I've done relationships wrong. And the single most important quality you can have in a horizontal relationship, I'm not even talking about spiritual relationships, but a horizontal relationship is, as you mentioned, Sean, trust. 
faith in that person. Faith in something you can't see. You can't see someone's character. You can see what that character does. You can see what flows out of a heart, but you can't really see and know what's going on in a heart. You know, sometimes people have been uh, so committed to getting married, uh, they fake it till they make it. And uh, they act like one person up to the time they say, I do. And then after you come back from the honeymoon, you discover you married somebody else completely different. Uh, You know, you can't see a heart. You can see what a heart does, but you can't see a heart. So sooner or later, one of the things that is scariest about human relationships is that we have to make that leap, if you will, that run to emotional intimacy, <laughs> to uh, quote the movie Red. Uh, you Red know, you, ha- you have to say uh, that, uh, okay, uh, based upon what I see in this person and based upon what I've experienced with this person, I believe they have a good heart. You know, for me, when I first dated, started dating my wife, Pam, one of the things that she did was really really wise, and I don't think she really saw the brilliance behind all of this, was I was really snake bit about relationships, didn't think I could trust anybody anymore, but she invited me to an open house where she worked. Well, she worked with severe and profoundly developmentally disabled kids. She taught them PE, and I remember going to this, and uh, these kids were not high-functioning. They didn't know a lot, but they did know who really loved them, and they were all over Pam like white on rice. You can't fake that. And so what I could see on the outside was revealing to me the heart on the inside. It gave a basis for my faith in her character. I could trust her, therefore I could open up my heart to her. That's how horizontal relationships works. I guess what I'm trying to get around to with all of this is to say our vertical relationship with God isn't really that different. In fact, I don't think it's different at all. Uh, We can't see God can we? We can certainly see the things that God has done. Uh, we can see his artistry and his beauty in the creation. Uh, we can see, uh, for instance, uh, his uh, uh, amazing uh, way, ways that he intervenes in the lives of people through answering prayer. But the most important thing that we can see that reveals to us the heart of God that allows us to be able to have that faith in him, that trust in him, that what he says is really true is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God walking among us in the person of Christ. And as we are exposed to the truth that God has revealed about Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, his Holy Spirit causes us to enter into an intimacy with God that's based on faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved, Through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now understand something. My faith in God, the faith that I have in him, the the confidence that when I pray, he's hearing me. I'm not just talking into the air. Uh, The the faith that his word is true, the faith that he is going to uh, finish the good work he started in me, Uh, the faith that all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. All these things revolve around what I see God has done in the realm of human history. I am absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt based upon hard historical evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he died on a cruel Roman cross, and that he rose from the dead. And his Holy Spirit then, because of that faith that he has given to me, bears witness with his spirit that I belong to him. In other words, I love him because he first loved me. He's revealed his love 
to me. And just like, uh, you know, say, you know, your first uh, flailing attempt at having a relationship with a significant other, you know, when you were in junior high school or something like that, didn't really go too deep and didn't work out real well because you weren't experienced in the ways of relationship uh, and being able to receive and give love. Same thing is true in our walk with God. Early on, we don't know a whole lot about how to relate to somebody. We can't see with our eyes or touch with our hands or or things like this. But as we learn to pray, as we learn to deepen our knowledge of God's word, as the Holy Spirit causes us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ supernaturally, uh, we enter into a a depth of relationship, a nearness and intimacy with him uh, that words can't describe, uh, far more deep and intimate than any other relationship we ever have. Uh, So uh, I guess what I'd say is, don't become so locked in to the material that you deny the spiritual because we don't do that in our horizontal relationships and we shouldn't do it in our vertical ones either. Yeah, so expectations versus payoff. We love to romanticize a tangible relationship until we get it and then it's boring. Yeah. But if on the other hand you have a trust-based relationship with God that isn't interfered with or even deceived by our five senses, it ultimately brings us down to what a relationship's all about. What reasons do I have to trust this person? So your homework assignment, Mike, is this. When you're wondering, you know, faith just isn't enough, maybe try the recommended dosage. Learn the reasons you have to trust God's character in particular, his promise, I'll never leave you and forsake you. And the more you build up your understanding of his character, the more you'll appreciate him, as opposed to looking for counterfeits that then omniscient being said wasn't necessary for him to know you and for us to know him. Yeah, but but faith, whether it's relationships in the here and now uh, or the there and then, horizontal or vertical, faith is the straw that stirs a drink. Without faith, you don't have a relationship. Hebrews 11. Yep. All right, speaking of reasons and trusting. Those who would try to combat it are uh, peppering our brother Robbie, who's currently taking an Old Testament uh, course at a public university, so he's going to give us lots of material for the next couple months. Um, He was told that the instructions that were given to Jesus' disciples when he sent out the Twelve are contradictory and the passages, to their credit, uh, they have to go to the NIV apparently, but we won't fault him for that. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, and these were his instructions, quote, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. But in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 and verse 3, Luke, quoting him, says, he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. So when it comes to Jesus' instructions for provisions, should we all go apostate over the fact that Jesus told them they can't take a cool stick with them? Um, No. (laughs) This is what's called splitting hairs, but also noting even the minute details, the NIV, to its credit, and well-intended though it may be, tries to claim that the quote that Mark is giving from Jesus were his instructions, whereas the overwhelming majority of translations just note, Jesus said this. So if I'm quoting my father, I can summarize it, or I can verbatim quote him. Now, of the two kinds of people, John Mark, who is the disciple of the Apostle Peter, who is the disciple of the uh, Messiah Jesus, 
who do you think is going to focus on more detail, that kid or a doctor who interviewed the eyewitnesses and made sure to get the exact wording? Little details were his specialty. He even went on to note medical conditions Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's the point of emphasis on why this is not only silly, but not only splitting hairs as well, but also missing the whole point of conversation in order to lay the standard for the Bible. When Mark is summarizing this point, he's speaking to an audience that is understanding they're going to be traveling. So what does he tell them to do? Don't bring extra clothes, don't bring money, don't bring food, you'll be provided for. He mentions a staff, because that usually is what you include in walking. But Luke includes the addition of detail, that he actually didn't specify a walking stick. He said, bring nothing, because he told them the same provisions would be given. You're going to travel, same in the account. You're going to be provided for by the cities that you travel to, same in each account. And... If they don't receive you, he gave them the same instructions, both in Mark and in Luke. So in noting this tiny little detail about whether or not Jesus said, don't bring a staff or bring it, that would matter if the staff played an important role in his instructions. Say, for example, in the book of Exodus, Moses was told specifically that staff is going to be something I'm going to bring and work my wonders through in order to testify my power to Pharaoh. But if the parallel accounts, say, for example, a recap in Deuteronomy, said the Lord told me not to bring a staff, well, which is it? Did he tell him not to bring a staff or to bring it? Because the staff, key difference here, is an important part of this story. But if, on the other hand, the Gospel of Mark notes, you're going to travel, so don't take the things that you normally bring for travel with you. And Luke says, you're going to travel, so don't bring the things you normally bring for travel with you. The fact that one mentions a staff and the other says no staff is splitting hairs at best or an exaggeration and manipulation at worst, which you can't really, I guess, fault them for because they have a cited reputation for this in college. But here's the point. If someone brings these objections up to you, and this is oftentimes our best advice when it comes to people that challenge the authority of Scripture because it doesn't meet a standard no document in ancient history would ever match whatsoever, but then, of course, have plenty of grace and forgiveness for any other historical information that doesn't tell them there's a God. Ask them, okay, if I could explain to you to your satisfaction that this, in fact, is not as big a deal as you're making it out to be, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Now, I'd be amazed, and it would be a work of the Holy Spirit, if the significance of whether or not Jesus said a staff made all the difference for someone in eternity. But it won't. It doesn't. Yeah, and, and you know, the other detail that I would add is if you carefully look at the passage, uh, the contradiction goes away anyway. Uh, in the passage in Mark, we are told uh, not to uh, to bring a you are to bring a staff. That is singular, a staff. In the passage in Luke, if you look at it carefully, it says uh, again, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, plural, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. In other words, don't bring a backup staff with you. Just bring the minimum necessary for a particular journey, and I'm going to take care of the rest. Is that a plausible interpretation of that? Yeah, based upon the language, it certainly is. But it says, no, it says this over here, and it says this over here. Um, well, once again, is it a contradiction or an addition of detail? You know, 
Uh, if someone's already made up their mind, it's going to contradict. Not much you can do to persuade them otherwise. But the fact of the matter is, even in the language itself, you don't have identical language there. A staff and staffs, plural, are two different things. Also noting, they would also claim that Jesus' family history is contradictory as well. Apparently, the father of Joseph is different in Luke as opposed to in Matthew. In Matthew, we're told that the father of Luke was Jacob, or at least his name was Jacob, in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1, whereas in the Gospel of Luke, it notes that Joseph was the son of Heli. Now, here's the interesting part. Matthew chapter 1 also notes something interesting about Jesus' family history from David. It says in verse 6, Jesse begot David the king, and David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. little interesting detail there. Solomon begot Rehoboam and so forth, the messianic line through Joseph. But in Luke chapter 3, there is also an interesting detail, noting that Jesus is in fact the son of David, but it notes him as the son of Nathan, another one of, J of David's sons. Now, I'm not an expert on genealogy, I could probably run for Congress, and the point of it, some of you get that, and the point of emphasis is an interesting detail here. Unless you have a very sordid family history, what is something you hope to assume when signing your birth certificate? That your parents had different parents. That your father and your mother were not brother and sister that they may have had some family relation down the line to 13 to 26 generations were all 15th cousins or something. But Sixth, yeah. 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 But here's the interesting yeah. part about all of this. If the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 notes Solomon as the line that Joseph tied through, then why is there a deviation for Jesse? Because Mary and the other party that's usually involved in a childhood may have had a relation to David, but not through the same family line. Yeah, and, and, it's... The, and, the, and there's definite reasons for that. Um, you know, when someone brings up the, they say, oh, well, there's two uh, contradictory genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. You have to understand, Matthew, first of all, was written for a Jewish audience. Uh, and a Jewish audience would be very, very interested in a genealogy that would, in a sense, give Jesus the legal right to be considered the Messiah. That means that he had to be related to King David through his father, Joseph. All that's, of 2 Samuel 7. That's how you would get the legal right to be considered the Messiah. Very interesting, when we read the language in Luke chapter 3 and verse uh, 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And it says, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, and uh, the son of Melchi, and so on. Uh, now, if you take a look at a New King James Bible, or any Bible worth its salt, you're going to see that the words, the son, are in italics. In other words, they're not in the original text. Literally, what this is being translated as saying is that Jesus was son of Joseph. We know that. That's there in the text. But then the next line, the son of Heli, the son is in italics. It's not there. Of Heli. In other words, uh, what is being portrayed here 
is Jesus' genealogy, not through Joseph. He was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but he was of Heli. And then it goes on and on and on. Well, uh, again, this appears to be the genealogy of Mary, his mother, because the Messiah could not, not only have to be related to King David legally uh, through the father, but also through the mother itself, herself. Even to this day, if you talk to Jewish people, they will say that being Jewish is reckoned through the line of the mother. But all genealogies record the names of their fathers. Right. So what we see in Luke is the genealogy of Mary, and what we see in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph. And there's another important reason why there's a distinction there. In Joseph's family line was a very unsavory king of Israel by the name of Jeconiah. And God cursed Jeconiah and said he would never have a son to sit on his throne. So what we see here is the brilliance of God in all of this. His mercy continuing to allow Solomon to have a part in the messianic line through Jeconiah down to Joseph, Jesus' foster father, his legal father, if you will. But his biological father was traced through Nathan, which bypassed the cursed line of Jeconiah and allowed him to be able to have clean credentials for being considered to be the Messiah himself. And fulfilling Isaiah 14 or 714 in the virgin birth, yeah. which would exclusively involve the mother. Yes, exactly. Oh. Thank you all for joining us. We'll look forward to talking to you about this all more next time. Send us your questions through questionsforope at gmail.com. We'll look forward to engaging with you then. Till then, God bless you. We'll see you in a few minutes for Wednesday night study. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.